let's take our Bibles and uh, turn in them today to the book of 1 John. We're going to finish the fourth uh, chapter, uh, verses 17 through 21, in a message that I've entitled, Perfect Love. And so, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being here with us. If you're online, we appreciate that. And we want to get uh, right into the Word. So let's bow our hearts before the Lord uh, in prayer. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for meeting with us so faithfully. We pray, Lord, that you just continue to uh, speak to our hearts in the, in the way that uh, only you can, Lord, that you would challenge and change us, God. Uh, we pray that your spirit would move freely and, and, and just uh, oh, purge and purify your body for your glory, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as sure as I stand before you today, Jesus Christ is coming again. And it is a truth that John affirms again and again throughout this little letter. Back in verse 28 of chapter 2, he said, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I'll say it again. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will return to this earth and he will not come as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He'll come as the lion of the tribe of Judah and his agenda will be to clean house, to make right all that is wrong and to judge the world in righteousness. We read in the book of Revelation, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Guys, I know that sometimes we look around at this debased climate and and culture into which we've been called and as we see the activity and the volatility and the hostility toward righteousness, we can wonder, where is God in all of this? Well, let me affirm in your heart today the fact that God is right where he has always been He is on the throne, and the Bible teaches that he has in his hand a wine cup of his wrath. And when a people fill that cup to the brim through sin and through rebellion and through depravity and debauchery, God will, in fact, press it to their lips and force them as a society, as a people, whatever the case may be, to drink it down to the dregs. And it's happened again and again historically. The Bible teaches that the day is coming when Christ will judge the earth with finality. Now, as for you and me, God doesn't want us intimidated of that day or ashamed on that day. He would have us be assured, bold on that day. And it's his love for us and the fullness of the work of his love in us that will give us the assurance the boldness to stand before him on that day. And so let's take and turn our attention beginning here in 1 John chapter 4. Let's read verse 17 where John writes, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Wow, well, it seems to me that we would do well to stop right here And think this verse through just a little bit. Now, John has been speaking to us of the marks of God's love maturing in our lives. And he's told us what it will look like, what the net effect 
will be presently and practically. Here he shares how it's going to serve you prophetically, ultimately, that is in the day of judgment. Now in our previous section of scripture, John told us that God's love completes its purpose in us or is perfected in us if we love one another. When you and I come to that place whereby rather than talking negatively about our brother or sister, we choose to bless them. When rather than uh, avoid them or fight with them, we choose to build up and encourage them. When we will, rather than feeling entitled ourselves, sacrifice and serve others in the body of Christ, the love of God has accomplished its purpose in our lives. Well, here John says there's another benefit. There's another blessing to the love of God uh, coming into maturity in us, and that is this, that we might have boldness, we might say confidence, in the day of judgment. Now, some of us may have the mindset of, are you kidding me? I mean, I'll just be happy to survive the day of judgment, much less have boldness or a confidence and an assurance in it. But the mark of God's love maturing in you is not intimidation. It is not fear or uncertainty concerning that day. It is boldness. Now, it's not arrogance, but confidence. How is it that we can stand confident before God in the day of judgment? Well, John tells us plainly, uh, but before we consider it, uh, I want to talk about this touchy topic for just a second here that many people like to bury their proverbial head in the sand and uh, just hope that if they don't think about it or try not to believe it, then it won't happen. And that is, uh, the words are, the day of judgment. Let me begin by simply saying that believing something is not the means by which something is made true or not true. Okay? Something is either true or it's not. Do we agree there? Something is either true or it is not. And believing that truth does not affect the truth, but it does affect me. For example, it is dangerous to play in traffic. That is simply truth. Now, if I choose to believe it, that truth will serve me. That truth will benefit me. I won't play ball in traffic. If I choose not to believe it, it doesn't change the truth, but it will definitely affect me when I'm out there playing freeze tag or Marco Polo you know, on I-44. People are into this moral relativism. You know, what's true for you? Speak your truth. Guys, you may as well say, well, speak your math. Any numbers guys in here? I know there's a few of you. You know, I mean, try that on your math test. Tell your teacher, there you are, you do the, you take the test, it comes back, there's a big fat zero on it, and then go up to him or her and just say, hey, listen, that may be how the numbers added up for you, but that's not how they added up for me, and you'll still get a big zero because truth is truth. Try that at a bank. You know, go to the bank, try to withdraw $10 million from your account. And the teller will be like, okay, sir, or okay, ma'am, let me see what day they'll go to their computer and be like, well, ma'am, I see here you only have $3.47. You know, and you'll say, uh, well, that may be true for you, uh, but it's not for me. And, and see how that goes. Try it with medicine. Guys, ladies, gentlemen, truth is truth. There is no your truth. There's only truth. 
And believing it affects me, not the truth. Now, here's truth. The day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead, both small and great, every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Perhaps you recall the scene in your mind's eye. There he was, Paul the apostle, in the midst of the uh, Athenians there in the Areopagus, and he was preaching to them. He was speaking to them regarding their epic levels of idolatry. And he said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus said in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And he said there that on uh, that day to those on his right hand, he would say, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundations of the, of the world. But to those on the left, he would say, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now in Revelation chapter 20, of course, we read, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And family, just as surely as God has appointed this day, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, some would say that here in verse 17 of chapter 4, uh, John is not speaking of that day, but he's speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, where you know each of us as believers must stand before Christ to receive our rewards or lack thereof. And Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But here's the catch. The word judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 is a different Greek word than the word judgment here in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. The word in 2 Corinthians is... Uh, Bema, as I said, again, alluding to the judgment of believers, not with regard to salvation, but an examination of the motives uh, for the purpose of the reward. Not, not what you did exactly, but the why behind the what that you have done. The word here in 1 John chapter 4 is, if I say it right, it's krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S. -I -I -S. It, it sounds kind of like crisis. It uh, speaks of condemnation. Uh, accusation and damnation. And this, guys, is why we plead with people to repent of their sin. 
and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from this wicked and perverse generation because the day is coming when all will stand before the throne of God. And the Bible teaches, I just read to you, that the books will be opened, the records kept of people's lives, and another book will be opened called the book of life. And whoever's name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns day and night forever and ever. And so as Paul would say, as though God were pleading through me, be reconciled to Christ, you see. But as for you, believer. There's no need for you to be worried about that day, to stand intimidated on that day. You can have boldness because Jesus Christ bore your judgment upon the cross. He bore the wrath of God against sin on your behalf that you might gain the benefit of God's love on his behalf. You know, it's kind of funny. Sometimes people think that they're going to judge God. You know, there they are. They're going to stand there on that day. And when they see God, well, they got some questions for him. I'm just going to tell you guys, that is absolute nonsense. There is not anyone who's going to have anything to say to him. The only way. Guys, think about this. How many times? Okay. Truth and transparency test. How many of you have ever gotten a traffic violation? Yeah, that's kind of like if you drive more than like, a year, you've probably at least been pulled over. You've gotten some kind of citation. Something's happened. And uh, there you go, and you go to the traffic court. And you're thinking, boy, I'm gonna, I've got some things to say. And then you step up behind the little lectern, and the judge looks at you, and, and you just start like your hands get a little clammy. And you thought you were going to be real bold. And, and all of a sudden, your mouth dries out, and you're just kind of like there in this kind of uh, humble position. And yes, sir, and okay, sir, and whatever you say, sir. And guys, this is a, just a human judge. He's a sinner like you. He, he's going to go home and have meatloaf and green beans and all the things. But when, you, when he's in that seat of judgment, there's just something. There's an authority. There's a, a reality that is imposed upon you. And, and guys, he's just a man. When you stand before the holy and righteous God of all creation, we're not going to have anything to say. The only way to have boldness in the day of judgment is to receive and walk in the transforming love of God today. You see, you won't fear in that day. You'll have boldness. How so? Because as he, that is Jesus, is, so are we in this world. Think about that. Paul said that like this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And to the Colossians, he said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, as for John, he likes the word abide. We abide. We live in Christ, our identity. Guys, how many of you realize that there's a cultural crisis of identity today? 
And this is the big buzzword, right? This is the catchphrase. Well, uh, I identify as. Well, and oftentimes it's tied to a gender or a pronoun, a he or a she or a they or a them, or I identify as a furry or whatever the case may be. There's just all kinds of the people, I, they're, they're looking for identity. There is a lack, there is an emptiness, there's something missing in them and they need something to be fulfilled. They need purpose, they need an identity. But you and me, we know our identity is bound up in Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. And as he is, so are we in this world. Listen, how is Jesus right now? Well, he is glorified. He is justified. He is forever righteous. He is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, now, we're not there practically. We're all still growing. But positionally, spiritually, this is where you are. You have that same standing right now. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus is worried about his standing before the Father? No way. And on that day, you won't be either. You will have boldness because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf has forever satisfied the righteous wrath of God. Jesus said this, and then we'll move on. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, for the believer, God's judgment isn't in the future, it's in the past. Guys, your sins were judged at the cross. They have been cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be held against you, uh, to be brought up or even remembered. Now, that's where somebody gives God praise. Come on. Now look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. You see, boldness is the necessary result of God's love coming into full fruition in our lives because love, that is agape, this love of God, expunges, it purges, it washes away fear. Love and fear in this context, well, they're mutually exclusive. Guys, here's something else to think about. If as he is, so are we in the world, that means you are a child of God. And God deals with us as his own son. How then can we ever be afraid? Listen, if God loved you when you were outside the family, there you were, you were disobeying him, you were rebelling against him, you were going away from him. Well, how much more, if you'll allow me, does he love you now that you're his child? And you say, well, I mean, that's kind of a theological conundrum because we know that God is love and he can't love more. And it's not, I get that, okay? But if he was for you when you weren't in the fold, you think he's less for you now that you are? You see what I'm saying? Now, 
I want to just touch on a couple of things here. I believe they're worth noting. Number one, I, I'm not sure that John is saying that this doesn't mean that you'll never be afraid. You know, like if God's love is perfect in you, that you'll never experience any kind of fear in any kind of context uh, if you're moving in the maturity of God's love and all of that. Back to my previous example, it's really okay uh, to play tag on the freeway. It's okay to be afraid to play tag on the freeway, okay? It'll keep you alive. Uh, Fear in such context is wise, okay? Paul spoke of being in peril on a regular basis. This is specifically a reference to not fearing God's judgment, there are elements of fear that are good for you, that will, that will serve you. And, and with that, the second thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that there is a healthy fear of God that the Bible speaks to. And so the principle of fearing God is always hedged within an appropriate context. We might consider it a context of, of godly fear or ungodly and unhealthy fear. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. It's like I was just saying, godly fear will keep you and me, it will keep us out of trouble. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is clean, It will keep us from engaging in those unclean, unhealthy things. It keeps us out of trouble. It's the beginning of wisdom. I revere God. I respect God. I try to be careful to honor God in the decisions I make and the direction that I take. Now, of course, there are a number of references we could cite that speak to our healthy need, even responsibility to fear God in this capacity. But we needn't fear God's judgment in the sense of, will I make it to heaven? Uh, will God judge me according to my sins? And Because what? The Bible, we just read it. That involves torment. God does not desire that for you. And this is where, as his children, we're to allow his love to have its way in our lives. Listen, child of God, God loves you. Christ died for you. And I've given you a lot of scripture today, but there's, there's more on the way. We read this, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the the word Abba. It's that very intimate, it's daddy. It's that familial intimacy. God wants his children to live in an atmosphere of love and confidence, not fear and torment. He who fears, John says, has not been made perfect in love. You see, if our relationship with God is marked by this tormenting fear, what's God going to do? What's God going to say? You know, when I stand before him, what that tells us is that God's love has not matured in our hearts, hasn't matured in our lives. That's okay, guys. Keep going. Keep growing. Maturity takes time. How many years does it take to grow from childhood 
to adulthood. More for some than others. I'm in the more for some category. You know, how many years does it take for a a little sapling to grow into a, a mighty oak? God has begun a good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it. It is ours to abide in Christ and to let his words abide in us. Guys, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what you read on the internet. Oh man, come on. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Mature love is something cultivated through time, through testing, through patience. How many times have you had a problem with someone and you want to fix it like now? Uh, But sometimes it takes patience. You know, when Paul said that you're not to let the sun go down on your wrath, he didn't say, let me translate that for you. It means fix your problem the same day. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, hey, let go of your anger before the sun goes down. And even this is proverbial. What if you're fighting at night? What do you do then? Okay, the idea is resolve your anger as quickly as you can so that you can work toward resolving the problem in a proper frame of heart and mind. Doesn't mean we got to do this now. We got to do this now. Sometimes it's not wise to do this now. We need to we need to let things cool off a little bit so that we have a proper frame of heart and mind to resolve the issue. And a mature love has the proper patience to resolve the problem at the right time. Does this make sense? Now, in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Now, you should know that the word him, we love him, is not found in every manuscript, but that's okay. It's not needed because the point remains the same. We love because he first loved us. It's this agape, our love, this agape love that he has given to you, that he has poured out in you by his Holy Spirit, owes its origin, that agape owes its origin to him, to the Lord. But to follow up on what we do have here, if a man doesn't love God, he's not born again of God. As Charles Spurgeon said, show me a fire without heat, and then show me Regeneration that does not produce love for God. Guys, we should be unafraid, unashamed to openly proclaim that we love Jesus Christ. Jesus was willing to die over his love for you. The question is, are we willing to live openly out of love for him? He first loved us. Before the world was created, before you were formed in the womb, the Bible teaches, God knew you and he loved you. When you were in sin, when you were against him, when you were neglecting his word, when you were prideful rather than prayerful, he loved you. And thus the song is born, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, right? Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. It's the goodness of God 
that leads us to repentance. Think of all you've done. Think of all you do. And that God loves you. And he's given himself for you. It's divine initiative and human responsibility. We love because he first loved us. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that today? I mean, honestly, that God loves you? Love believed is the mother of love returned. The way to love the Lord more. Sometimes we have this, I just want to love God more, you know. Well, I'm going to give you the secret. How, how can you love God more? I'm going to tell you, it's not to really try harder. It's not to stop doing this and to start doing that. It's, it's not really even being mindful of your love for Him at all. All your sacrifices for Him. Focus on His great love for you. And you will find a greater love welling up in you for Him. If you want to love Him more, think more on Him, more of Him, that He chose you, that He died for you, that He forgave you, that He made you His own. And your love for Him will only increase. And in verse 20, if someone says, I love God... Guys, we're not far from finished. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, that is, his fellow believer, right? The context of the family of God. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Well, guys, I can't help you here. Some of us wish that John would have stopped at the Baskin God's Love Club. (laughs) But he didn't. We don't just get to sit around and speak of God's great love for us and our great love for him. You know, it's pretty easy to say we love an invisible God. Uh, But if you don't love your brother in the body of Christ, John says you really don't love God at all. And he takes us back to the words of Jesus when he said that by this all will know that we were his disciples if we could quote scripture back and forth. Is that what he said? Uh, By this all will know that you're my disciples if you give so generously to the cause of Christ. Is that what he said? No. By this all will know you're my disciples if we pray day and night and operate in spiritual gifts. Is that what he said? By this all will know that you're my disciples. What's it say? If you have love for one another. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, they are mutually inclusive. Therefore, what we read here is that God does not suggest that we love one another. Well, let me just suggest that you love one another. Well, suggestion noted. I choose not to. No, He commands it. It's an imperative. 
He commands that we love our brother, that fellow believer. Listen, love is not emotion. It is action. Okay? It is a choice that we make and an action that we take. Does it mean that we have to be best friends? No, not at all. But it does mean that I will serve you, that I will value you. Your love for God, in principle, will out itself, will evidence itself in your love for brothers and sisters in the practical. Do you understand what I'm saying? As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, loving God, loving my brother, you can't do one without the other. Now we're going we're gonna to close with this. And so I want you to leave First uh, John here. Turn to the left in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, and we will uh, move toward our close. And when you get there, I want to draw your attention beginning in verse 23. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 23, and it says this. You with me? You there? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Guys, Imagine someone coming to church. There they are. And they have it in their heart to give a million dollars to the Lord. Now, I've never met that person. But I suppose, let's suppose they're out there somewhere. And there they are, check in hand. And they're getting ready to drop it in the offering. And then it surfaces in their mind, in their heart that they have some unsettled issue between them and another brother or sister. God says, you know what? There is something that you can do right now that is of more value to me, God says, than a million-dollar offering or any number you want to throw in there to make yourself feel like it's magnanimous and great. He says... Go and get right with your brother or your sister. Then, if it's found in your heart to make that offering, wonderful. Bring your gift, whatever, that's great. But more important than that is that you get right with your brother or your sister. The command from God is that we love one another. Well, should we give? Should we serve? Should we read? Should we pray? Of course. But those things are to be the overflow of love, not a legalistic endeavor to add credit or to our cause or somehow make ourselves right with God. And Well, I sinned an extra much this week. I'm going to throw an extra 20 on the, in the, you know, maybe that'll make up for it. No, it's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. We're never made right with God by something we do, as you well know. We're only made right with God on the basis of faith in what He's done. 
the works, the service, the giving, the praying, the reading, the studying, all these kinds of things are not an effort to obtain God's love. They're the result. They're the response of receiving God's love. And so, receive God's love. And give way to God's love. And God will be glorified in your life. Amen? Okay. God, we're so grateful for your love. And I just pray, Lord, that your love be perfected, matured, made complete in us. And I pray, Lord, that our love for you be obviously noted in our love for one another. Guys, while we're just sitting here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and just kind of our heart open before the Lord, I just want you to know God has so loved you that Christ has died for you. And if you've not received his love, if you've not believed on Jesus Christ, then do so today. I'm just telling you, judgment is coming. It's not a scare tactic. It's just a truth. But grace is available right here, right now. So turn from your sin. Believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. I'm reminded there in the book of Acts when the day of Pentecost he was sharing and the Spirit fell and the people were, you know, he shared the gospel, how they had crucified the Lord of glory, but that God raised him from the dead. And they were smitten in the heart. They were convicted over their sin. They said, what, what shall we do? And that's what he told them. He told them to repent to believe on the Lord Jesus that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing is tied to repentance. And so if that's you today, and I don't know, maybe you've gone to church before, maybe this is your first time at church, maybe you came with a friend, maybe, I, I don't know your story. I'm not asking you to join this church If you want to call this church your home, that's fantastic. We love that. We love you. That's fine and well. What I'm asking you is, does Jesus Christ have your heart? And if you're like, man, I don't know. I don't think he does. But I sure would like him to. Well, we can take care of that right here, right now. And if that's you, I would love to pray for you. If you'd be so bold as to say, that, that's my need, and just raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll say so, and you can put your hand back down. But I just want to give you a second to say, you know what? Today is a day of salvation for me, and I'm not going to harden my heart. I'm going to open my heart and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone I can pray for? Okay. Father, I just pray for every heart that's here today. And I thank you, Lord, that none of us are here by coincidence or happenstance or some strange circumstance, but that you have ordained from the foundations of the earth that we would be here today, that we might hear your word and have that opportunity to respond to your word. 
And so, Father, we just pray that uh, the seed of your word would be soaking in fertile soil even as, as we speak. And, Lord, that you would quicken us in our urgency to avail the opportunity to others. For surely you have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son and that you did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so use us and be glorified in us and we'll give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.